Um, I'll, I'll tell you about Jason here in just a little bit because a lot of you have been asking about him. But um, this morning we're going to be in the, in the book of Revelation. So if you've got a Bible, um, you can open it up there. Um, and uh, we're going to be studying out of uh, that particular book. Um, last week, uh, I meant to be here. Um, but uh, God <coughs> sometimes changes your plans a little bit, if you know what I mean. And uh, so Christian was able to uh, preach, and he did a good job with my notes. Um, so... Again, I'm kidding. He did a great... Everybody's like, what's your problem this morning? It's been a long week. But I think one of the things that I love about the book of Revelation, let me just say this, is, and I think the reason people avoid it is that on one end it can be confusing if you don't see the big picture. But when you step back, kind of like Christian talked about last week, kind of like this picture, when, when you're not up here looking at Revelation in every sparse little detail, like maybe you might have grown up in just... The way that maybe you grew up like I did, where it was charts and graphs and arrows and everything, and you were so confused by Revelation, and you pull yourself back, suddenly Revelation becomes beautiful. Because at the center of Revelation is Jesus. That's what he tried to lay out for us last week, was this idea that the nature of the book is that it's an apocalypse. It's not meant to be confusing. God was seeking to show us exactly what we needed to see and to hear. And, and not only was it an apocalypse, but we find out that the, the whole thing that he was seeking to reveal was Jesus himself. Is that this, this Jesus, he wasn't the humble one anymore that had come now as a baby, but now he was this one who was returning one day as the king and returning as the king. This letter then was from somebody very specific. It was from the father. And we find out it was from the father to the son and then all of us that are his servants get to share in on it. And it's meant to be this encouraging letter because everything from this prophecy is moving towards this idea that when you read this book, you will be blessed. And here's this, what this word blessed means it literally means to find that contentment that happiness that that complete understanding regardless of my circumstances that our God is in control he was writing it to remind them that while things might seem like they're out of control God is absolutely in control of everything now, the thing we're going to focus in on today is we're going to look at specifically one aspect of it. The way he talked about it was a puzzle box, the, the box top. That Sometimes what we need to do with this is we need to, to understand where it's going. And so the aspect of the puzzle that we're going to be looking at today that is the book of Revelation is that I believe this chapter just zeroes in on Jesus. In other words, the writer of Revelation, John, who's now getting this from God, from, a, from an angel all the way down through here, is wanting us now to get this grand picture of Jesus. Now, last Saturday or Friday night, I came home from Kansas City, and as I get in the car, one of the first faces that I love to see is Jason because he's always got this gigantic smile across his face. So I don't really care about my other three children at this moment. I just want to see him because the other three were fighting. And so I look back there, and he's got a little bump out there. And I'm like, I looked at Lisa and I said, When did Jason start chewing? And uh, she goes, I know, it just kind of has gotten a little bit swollen. And she goes, maybe we'll take him to the doctor. And I thought, well, you know, sure, whatever, it might go down tonight. So he woke up the next morning, and he was kind of cantankerous, and I went to go give him a hug, and he had switched from dipping skull to beech nut. That thing was out here like this. And I looked at my wife, and she's like, oh, what should we do? And so we, we took him to the emergency room. We get into the emergency room, and it's... Uh, you know, we're thinking, you know, just give him a little drug, dose him up, and we'll bring him back home again. And all of a sudden, the doctor gave us that news that what we need to do with him, we can't do here. We need to go to Children's Hospital. 
I'm like, no, just juice him with some drugs, man. It's all good. We're good. Just give him a little. And they, they said, no, we need to get him to a pediatric unit at, at, at Children's. So we went there. Um, when we get there, um, you know how God just always has people in place to meet you? Gosh, it's just like, he's so powerful in that way. But as we get there, Sunday, a, a nurse came up who actually is a part of Cornerstone. I'd never really met her before, but she, she walked in. It was huge for us to have her there, just in kind of that little moment. But then doctors kept coming us to us and saying, we don't know. We don't know how he got it. We don't know what's going on. We just know that maybe we need to go in there and drain a little bit. And then they kind of said the words to us. And just also, we found some weird stuff on his CAT scan that we might need to biopsy. Well, no parent wants to hear that. And all the while, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, God, you know, you're going to come through. I mean, my gosh, I'm a holy man. I'm a holy man. Leading people. Of course you're going to come through for me. And in that process, they finally came and said, uh, you know, hey, let's go inside. Let's take a look. Let's drain things a little bit. And I'm sitting outside, and I'm trying to find my wife. I'm, I'm in this area that's waiting for surgery, and there's consult rooms. And it, I was kind of throwing a pity party. And all of a sudden, I hear out of one door, one doctor say specifically, I'm about ready to tell you news that you're not going to want to hear to a group of parents. It's like, <sighs> And then out of the other door, and they should have shut these doors because I'm a huge, like, listener to other people. But this other door comes out of these, and it says, we've run out of options for your child. You know those moments where you realize, I'm not that bad off. Found my wife. They were able to drain things a little bit, but they were still looking at us saying, we don't know what's going on. And, and, and here's where we're going to go today, which I think is important which is in order for us to rightly see the problems we're facing with a correct perspective, God sometimes has to show us his enormity and his vastness so that our problems are small and meager in comparison. In the midst of all of this, I love it how God does this, as he begins to show us not our problems, but he begins to show us himself. As we begin to pray on Thursday night, I was praying over him, and the doctors are still saying, we got to find the right drug to get him on. You're probably not going to go home for a little while. And I'm praying over little Jason that night. I was staying with him that night. And in that moment, you just, I remember just seeing the vastness of Jesus. Woke up the next morning, and they still were kind of telling us, weren't sure what we were going to do. Yesterday, we woke up. Jason hadn't really been sleeping through the night. And all of a sudden, Jason came to life. The doctor came in and said, I guess we found the right drug. Do you want to go home? <laughs> yeah. He goes, well, let's see if you can take it orally. And so last night, it was such, we were so thankful for it. We got to bring Jason home. And so God just totally reminded us he can do whatever he wants. But in this case, God chose to, to really do a cool work. So we're super thankful for that. <clears throat> but I don't want to miss this because this is important to where we're going. I think our problems are so big because we don't see how big Jesus is. And this is the case of the guy that wrote this, John. At the time, he's sitting on an island called Patmos, and he's probably struggling through a lot of different things. He's wondering, God, where are you? What's going on? Seeing the events of the world. He's seeing all these different things, and he's wondering, God, where are you? Now, on one level, you would expect then God to come in and go, oh, John, it's going to be okay, buddy. It's all right. Buck up, Tamper. Let's turn that smile upside, or that frown upside down. 
But Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, what he does instead is before he allows John to be comforted, he first shows himself, him a picture of himself. And it's huge. In the book of Revelation, it says this, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in the furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now stop. It wasn't God coming in and going, hey buddy. He said, I want you to see me. And what does John do? It says, when I saw him, I fell on my face as though dead. And I love this. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels or seven messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now let's dive into this, and let's take a little bit of a look at it. John, in this particular case, and you can kind of take notes on this, I think it'll be important, is a guy that was in the midst of tragedy. At this particular point in John's life, all the other apostles were gone. They had left the scene. They were systematically terminated by the Roman government. And after being systematically terminated in the fiercest manner, they then begin to go after the church. And so John has now seen a lot of his friends that are dying. Not only that, but these seven churches that I just read about, they weren't doing so hot. John was supposed to be the pastor of them. Five of them are kind of struggling. And if you can just imagine, he's sitting there wondering, God, what in the world is going on? Not only that, but he had been exiled to an island called Patmos, and it was kind of like this prison kind of an island. It was kind of like Australia. I always remind Australians they come from a penal background. (laughs) What crime did he commit? Look up there. It says the crime that he committed was an account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. See, this particular time, it was a crime to proclaim the word of God specifically that Jesus was Lord. And and Paul was going throughout all that particular area proclaiming that Jesus is the Lord as opposed to Caesar. And the government didn't like that and they chose to put him on a penal island. He had every reason to be depressed. And more than likely, I think just from reading it and understanding it, he probably was. 
20 or 25 years before this, in, in, in 72 AD, he had watched as the vision of what they thought being Jerusalem was gonna now, Jesus was gonna come back, establish his kingdom, and he watched as Jerusalem was absolutely destroyed, and thousands upon thousands of people were not only murdered, but I would say this, it became a genocide, and he's probably wondering in the back of his head, Jesus, is there any hope for the future? They then began to go through towns and villages killing more people. It was satanically driven. But if they would have read and reminded themselves in Luke 19, Jesus promised that this was going to take place, that the rejection of the Messiah had consequences, and God allowed Rome to come in, and they were absolutely destroyed. And he's wondering, God, where are you? He was probably sitting in a particular, the accounts we hear is a cave on the Aegean Sea, looking out over it. He'd been a pastor of these particular churches all over kind of modern-day Turkey, and these seven churches were not doing very well, specifically five. There was first Ephesus that had left its first love, and now Jesus was going to take them out as a church, potentially. Not only had that happened, but then in Pergamos, we find out that they had sinned, and not only sinned, but they'd gotten caught up in idolatry, and the Lord was about ready to fight against them. Thyatira had compromised with sin and allowed paganism to come in, and they were on the brink of judgment from Jesus. Sardis was basically almost dead and Laodicea was so nauseating that Jesus was about ready to puke him out of his mouth. I was sitting there this week thinking, man, he's a terrible pastor. And that's probably how he felt. I don't know if you've ever been at that point where you just wonder, gosh, God, am I doing anything right? Everything seems to be falling apart. Not only that, by this time, under the reign of Domitian, it was the first time ever that a ruler had been named that you now were going to treat them like a god. You were going to call them Lord. And John, now being about 90 years old, was a very old man. And the island that he got put on was actually a place in which now they would go work the quarries and the mines. In other words, he was being sent as a 90-year-old man to go dig out rock. And I think sometimes we don't let John be human here. I mean, if, I think if we could be sitting in that room at that particular time, he's probably wondering, God, what's happening? What's going on? If anybody could have said, I'm a holy man, it's him. I've done everything right. But here's what I love. At this particular moment, though, have you ever had it before? And I, don't, I don't know if you have, but you're at your lowest point, and all of a sudden, God begins to pull the blinders back on your eyes. You begin to see things from just a different perspective. That was my point in that quote, is that God sometimes doesn't change our circumstances, but what he does instead is he begins to show us himself so that our circumstances have purpose. They're not meaningless. Not only did he pull his eyes back, or the, the, the blinds from his eyes, but then he pulled back the curtain on heaven. I mean, John is about ready to see stuff that is going to be absolutely mind-blowing. In fact, he's going to have to use this word like and as all the time because he's coming back to people saying, I couldn't even understand it very well that I had to use words like like or as to even help you to understand what I saw. But again, it comes back to what I said at the very beginning where we're going to go. God doesn't come alongside of him and give him nuggets. Instead, what he does is he comes and he's about ready to get a vision of Jesus and there's John sitting there 
The thing that he tells him that's so important where John is asking, is there a future? In verse seven, we find out that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back in the clouds. Now for John, again, he's wondering, what is going on here? I thought you were gonna establish a kingdom. And in verse seven, he says, oh, don't worry. I am currently, see that word up there? It says, he is coming. He doesn't say he will come. He is right now in the process of coming. And in 2 Peter 3, there's all these kinds of people that say, you know, is Jesus really coming back? Let me just tell you this. In the same way that Jesus came the first time, God is now looking at John and saying, I can tell you for a fact right now he is in the process of coming back. And he's not only coming back any old way, he's coming back the way that I promised in Acts 1. He's coming back in the clouds. And he's not coming back to do anything. He's not coming now back as the suffering servant. He's coming back as king of kings and lord of lords. And in verses four through six, what we find out about this triumphant moment, he is coming back as fully the king that he is. And we also learn in Philippians two, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's, not no, longer, he's no longer the suffering servant. He is king. You can almost tell John's like, well, that's great. But I'm on a stupid rock. The book of Revelation, though, is meant to say, John, I have it under control. In verses four through six, I'm not gonna read those, but his whole point in Revelation one, four through six is to show that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, the triune God, is currently now working out every purpose. And while everything might seem out of control, his point is, is that everything is being put in place exactly like God intended it. Even though there was perfection and humankind sinned, God right now is in this redemptive process of forming for himself a people, and one day he's gonna share with them an eternity that we can't even begin to imagine what it's gonna be like. John just says, God is in control. Behold, he's coming in the clouds. Jesus is coming back. But here's John And it says he's sitting there on an ordinary Lord's Day. And I love this, though. He's in the Spirit. Now, in the Spirit is a pretty interesting word there. What this particularly means is is that this was about ready to be not a normal human experience. It's a simple way to maybe say he's about ready to have his world rocked. When we say that the the curtains are about ready to be pulled back is that John was going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to go beyond his senses. This was going to be beyond smell. It was going to be beyond sight. It was going to be beyond anything that he could ever imagine. He was going to be like Peter and Paul and Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah. He was going to get a glimpse into a realm that we never hardly ever get to see that when it gets pulled back, he's going to now no longer see the events of this world that seem like they're chaotic. He is going to see a God enthroned like was talked about earlier when Jared mentioned this idea that angels are flying around him. In other words, God is in absolute control. The vision was going to be beyond human. It was going to be supernatural. But it was going to be absolutely clear. In fact, it was going to be so clear that God announced it. Look back up there in verse 10. He announced it I love how he says this, in a loud voice like a trumpet. 
Anytime God's about ready to do something big, have you ever noticed that reading through the Bible, there's always a trumpet? When God gave the law, there was thunder and there was lightning all around the place, but when it, finally he was gonna give it, there was a trumpet that was sounded. When they called people to worship around the temple, a trumpet was sounded. When the year, the year of Jubilee was about ready to happen, a trumpet was sounded. In the future, we know this, there's gonna be a loud shout, but what else is gonna be there when he raises the dead? A trumpet. He's about ready to announce something. But the reason that I have in there that it was like a trumpet is that it wasn't necessarily a trumpet. We're gonna hear trumpets in chapter five, six, seven, eight, 10, 11, 12, 14, 16, 19, and then again here in chapter one. A little out of breath after saying that. But any time God was about ready to make an announcement, a trumpet blew. But it wasn't any old trumpet. Now just try to wrap your mind around this. Remember I said this word like or as is gonna come up a lot? It was like a trumpet, but it was the voice of the risen Savior. Now there you are chilling, being all miserable, and if you can just think about this, a trumpet goes off behind you. Can we say depends? Not only that, but then the trumpet doesn't just sound, but it's a voice. And in it, the voice of what it says, we find out about that in verse 11, is he says, I want you to write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. In other words, now he's saying, I'm coming to you not just to blow you away, but to tell you, I'm about ready to give you a vision of myself for a purpose. I want you now to write these things to these churches. I want you to tell them what you saw. Now, these churches have already been mentioned in verse four just a little bit, but what these churches were would have followed a postal route. In other words, each time that he mentions them, they would have been along the way of the postal route and what was going on. And in fact, in verse 20, we're gonna find there's messengers that are meant to, sent, to be sent with this letter to them. But he's telling him, I have a job for you. Now, I love what happens next. He hears all that, and if you've ever been scared before, you've ever not wanted to turn around, it says in there, then he turned around to see the voice that was speaking to him, and on turning around, the first thing he sees are seven golden lampstands. Now just remember, he's probably frustrated with churches. Now what we find later in chapter, or verse 20 is, is that these lampstands are representing actually the churches that he's shepherding. God gives him this vision that here's Jesus, but in the midst of, around Jesus are these seven golden lampstands that God says these actually represent churches. The, the, the lamps that used to be made, they were made out of like steel and clay and there was a wick inside of them and they would light things up. And in order to be seen, just like with our lamps today, they were put on a lampstand so that everyone might see within the room. In other words, what he's saying is, is those churches that you think aren't worth anything actually still have life in them. And then he calls them golden. I think he's going after John saying, you're not seeing things correctly. Those churches that you're looking at right now that you're so frustrated with still have life in them. They still have the means to be able to shine into the world and they're golden. In other words, they are precious to me. John, you don't see this, but those things are precious. So much so that back in verse five, he says, I love them, I died for them. 
John, you need a new perspective. Then in verse 13, not only do we now see these things that it loves, but it says he sees one like the Son of Man. John's looking in there and he sees these golden lampstands, but his eyes are quickly drawn to this one like the Son of Man. It conjures up this idea out of Daniel 7 of the Messiah. In other words, he knows standing in the middle of it is not any old man. That is Jesus Christ, the risen Messiah, standing in the midst of it. And he's not human like we might think of it. He is now the exalted Savior. I don't know what happened from his exaltation and his ascension to now, but it's almost like the transfiguration. That dude ain't no normal, but I know he's the promised one of Daniel 7 standing in the midst of him. Again, just put yourself where he's at. What in the world? He goes on and explains him a little bit. Oops, I mean to go on there. He says he's standing there in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. Now, the long robe would have been depicting like either a, a king or maybe even a priest. Now, everything we know, especially back to, to, to Revelation 1.5, is that Jesus Christ truly is the firstborn. He is the ruler of all kings on the earth. So on one end, my mind was first going, this is the king. He's looking in the midst of those lampstands and he's going, there is the exalted king. But there's a little problem. That little golden sash around his robe begins to give us a clue, especially from the book of Leviticus and Exodus, of understanding who's in the middle of those, those lampstands. He's not a, just a king, and he's not just a prophet, but he is the priest. John, I know you might have given up on these particular churches, but I'm in here as the high priest, this one that is in amongst my churches, and I'm walking amongst them. And the idea of a high priest we know when we study the book of Hebrews is, is that this is high priest that has experienced what we've gone through, that understands, that sympathizes, that we can now go because of him to the throne of grace. In other words, that one that is standing in the midst of them now is not this one that wants to destroy them and take them out. He is the gentle high priest that is among these churches because he died for them and he cares for them and he loves them. I was praying this morning, God, would you just peel back the blinders of our eyes just a little bit to see that this church gathered, regardless of all our warts, Jesus is walking amongst us and cares for us. He adores us. John, you need to see something. Your perspective is wrong. These churches to which I died for, they're precious, they're golden. Yeah, these people have problems, but so do you, dude. I care about each and every one of them, and I'm walking amongst them. Now, on one level, John might have been saying, yeah, but you don't know these people like I know these people. Mrs. Jones, oh gosh, Mrs. Jones in Pergamum, she's got issues, Lord, causing all kinds of problems. I think that's why he says next about Jesus, this next picture. He says his hair was, was white, like white wool, like snow. In other words, this Jesus truly is holy. He's, and here's the word I'm gonna use for us today. Anytime you see this idea of white, it's always signifying this idea of pure. This Jesus is this one who is pure and he's, he's transforming his church in such a way that his church might be pure. But John's sitting there going, no, if you knew these churches, you would understand that they're not pure. Jesus, do you see that? And Jesus then says, his eyes were like a flame of fire, meaning, John, I can see it really clearly. 
don't know if you've ever had those moments where you're like, God, do you understand what's going on right now? Do you see what's happening in my world and God's in heaven going, I see everything. This is Jesus. He's, he's better than Superman. He's got x-ray vision that can even see through lead. He's moving amongst his church and he sees everything. He sees the sin. He sees the difficulty. He sees all these churches that are walking away. And he's telling John, I am pure and I do see it and I am gonna bring purity upon those churches, John, but this process takes time and I'm walking amongst my churches. He moves to his feet. Whenever it talks about the feet of somebody, it talks about this idea of judgment. See, John probably thought in his head, man, does he even see it? Is he gonna deal with it? And he brings out this idea of this church now, and he talks about his feet that are burnished in bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice, he says, well, it's like the roar of many waters. John, I see it. And I am gonna bring judgment on these churches. But don't miss something. It's not the judgment in which he's gonna take people out and he's gonna cast them off into the lake of fire. We're not talking, I don't think, about that kind of judgment here. I think we're talking about the Hebrew 12 type of judgment. I'm gonna come in and John, you may not realize it, but it's not your job to refine the church, it's mine. I see it, John. I notice what's going on inside of these churches. And I am gonna come into those churches and I am gonna shape them. And yes, people are gonna experience difficulty. Even people are going to die, the Bible talks about. But I want you to know that I'm gonna come in there and my whole goal is to make them holy. John, I want these churches to be holy more than you do. John, I see it. I understand what's going on. And he talks about this idea of this, this voice that's like water. It's like Niagara Falls. What does that mean? Anytime that that word is conjured up, it speaks of this idea of the word of God being proclaimed. See, right now, whether you know it or not, whether you are even experiencing this, but anytime God's word is opened, it is like the roar of Niagara Falls. God is shouting out to his church, do you hear me? I'm calling out to you. And John is about ready to have these different groups of people. We find out in verse 20, these angelos, these messengers. He said, not only are you doing that, but I'm gonna have you give that message to them and they're gonna go back into their churches and they're gonna bring this roar of my word back into their church. Every time that preaching happens inside of a church in which, the God's, in which God's word is opened up, God roars to his people. Now, you might be sitting there and it might be, it might be that way, but I'm telling you, God is roaring. John, I've got this. I've got this. Have you ever had your kids come up to you, you know, and they wonder if you've got things under control? And you look back at them and you're like, seriously? No, I don't. <laughs> no, I, I understand what's going on. But he's just saying to him, John, I've got it. I would just say this to everybody that's here. No matter what's going on in your life, Jesus has it. He is this one that he's now being given this, this experience to John to see the magnificence of who he is. 
And what's interesting is in verse 16 now, he talks about these seven, golden, these seven stars, which you find out later, those seven stars are these messengers. John, I've got people to help you with this. And it, well, what if those people don't do their job? He said, well, don't worry, because coming out of my mouth is a sharp, sharp sword that we find out later in chapter two. He will take out false teachers if he needs to. In other words, and here's what's scary for someone standing in front of you proclaiming. If I come up here and ongoingly communicate to you false teaching, there's a sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth that will take me out. This is serious. John, I have this. And when it talks about his face shining in full strength, what he means is my glory is going to come to these churches to show myself off to the world. John, I have it. My gospel will go forward. My church cannot be stopped. Not even the gates of death can stop it. John, it's okay. Overwhelmed though, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. People will always come up to me and say, I'll tell you what, I wish I could just see Jesus right now. Really? All right. Because the funny thing is that everybody that stands in front of God ends up on their face cowering. Not only were these churches sinful, but I think in this just weird moment, kind of like Isaiah experienced, I'm a sinner too. He just falls in front of him. Now here's where I love that. Anytime we end up on our face, that's when God knows, I now have your attention. I've got it. And it says, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I'm the first and the last, the living one, I died. And behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. In other words, John, I have your life in my hands. And not only that, John, we find out earlier in verse five, I died for you, I adore you, I died to deal with that particular sin. If you're sitting here today and you know Jesus, you are fine. No matter what's going on, he just wants John to understand you're fine. Now just write the letter. Do what you're asked to do. I have got you. John, quit worrying. I'm in control. See, this is what I think we need to experience. As I was studying this out this week, and again, that night, I was just, I was standing over my son. I'm like, okay, gosh, we gotta get the right drug into him. We gotta do this, we gotta do that. We've gotta do these things. God, do you understand what's going on here? Do you understand this requires some serious medicine? And Lord, if you don't show up, terrible things, I mean, I'm just wrestling with God over what's taking place. And in a weird moment, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit smacked him, not literally, but smacked me up the side of the face and reminded me, I've got this, Todd. I created him. I know how he works. You know how the doctors keep coming in and going, hmm? I know. I know exactly what's going on inside of him. If I wanted to right now, I could totally heal him in an instant, Todd. I can do whatever I want, I'm God, but just maybe, Todd, this situation isn't about him, it's about you. Maybe all of this is happening in such a way for me to remind you, Todd, you're not God, I am. Sat there bawling over my son. 
You know, your prayers shift then from, God, you know what's going on, my gosh. What's wrong with you, Lord? I tell you, if I had your job, I'd get the right medicine to him. You know what I'm saying? It just turned into God is yours. God, whatever you need to do, you know what you're doing. Little did I know that Friday, the right drug was coming in. They were searching for drugs. Friday, they put the right drug inside him. Saturday, they looked at us and said, all right, take him home. I was like, how about if we put our other three in and take him home? God has us. He's going to purify us. No matter what's going on inside of your life right now, he knows what he's doing. I think that's why earlier he wrote, look, I'm the Alpha and the Omega who is and who was and who is, I am the Almighty. I think if there's one thing not only missing in Cornerstone, but I would just say this, in the church in the United States, we've forgotten how big our God is. He's huge. The immensity of our God stretches across the universe that he created. He can handle anything that's going on in our lives. He's God. Which brings me back to my point. In order for us to rightly see the problems we're facing with correct perspective, God must first show us his enormity and vastness so that our problems are small and meager in comparison. So I don't know what's going on in your world right now. But I'm telling you this. Our God is huge. Let me go back to the last week. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you can't stand in that confidence. If you don't know Jesus and follow Jesus, if you've not trusted in his work to rescue you and to make you his own, everything I've just said does not apply to you. But if today you bend your knee, I promise you, then everything does apply to you. That doesn't mean life gets better. It doesn't mean we have ponies and puppies and rainbows. That's not what it means. What that means is we start to see the world from a correct perspective. But for the rest of you in here, just everybody up here, everybody, We serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He created all things. All things were created by Him and for Him. He holds all things together. He is orchestrating everything in such a way that there will come a time in which he will call his people home and every knee will bow finally and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, in this giant scheme of things, even right now, we're good. Do you hear me? We're good. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to bring up a couple. And they're going to share with you a little bit more about this. But if you don't know the Pearsons, this is Jay and Carol. We're going to actually do this every week. I'm going to bring up different people to talk about kind of how this applies to to their own life. Uh, Jay's a guy that I've gotten to know over the years. um, And uh, just been thankful to see what God is is doing in his life. Uh, Kara, I've gotten to know through Jay, so I don't know if it's actually true. But um, just gotten to know them a little bit. But maybe just real quickly, um, you guys are going to be my application. So 
in light of everything I just said, how has this impacted you guys' life? Uh, maybe just getting a clear perspective on, on Jesus. Yeah, I, I very much went through, I've lived this out um, in my career. Um, years ago, I was in a, in a job that I hated, like pit of your stomach sinking when you step in at 801. And, um, and, and, and rightfully so, we were kind of mistreated as employees. And I remember thinking that this is so bad and I don't think this is gonna change that, that it's on me to do something different. The crazy thing is, I actually saw myself as a provider for our family and not God. And then beyond that, I thought, I can't leave this job because they are my, the, the owners are my provider. And it's totally opposite. And I remember sitting in my office during break, reading through Matthew 6, talks about the birds of the air. They don't store, they don't, uh, I'll cut to the end, but, but God takes care of them and he loves us way more than the birds of the air. And then the next passage talks about um, who of you that worries can add a single hour to your life. And I got to the point of saying, okay, God, I know you are a provider. I'm going to trust you in this. I'm going to leave this, and I'm going to be homeless, and I'm going to be at peace. And I remember coming home and telling Kara, you know, I just resigned from, from the job. And, <laughs> and it was like, I was surprised because she was okay with it, you know, because she had seen what, what we had gone through. And then you start thinking, how crazy was that, that I think that I have to be the provider? God is my provider. He has come through. He is so faithful. Um, and it was, it was one of those times in my life that marked this great moment of faith as I was in my office reading through Matthew 6 and just going, it's, it's God. It's Jesus. This is, this is his role. This is not mine. Um, I just need to learn from it, go from it, uh, grow from it, and, and be obedient. And it worked out. It always does, you know, so. What about you, Kira? Um, Well, a cool part of that story is that same week, um, the Lord totally rebuilt this small business that Jay had been having and was struggling, and there were no orders for, what, several months. And it was just such an awesome way of God just encouraging us, that step of faith that I'm going to take care of you. Um, So that was a neat part of that. For me, um, I think I especially needed a fresh vision of the greatness of God as a new mother. Uh, I remember um, just those early days being so exhausted and overwhelmed and, and insecure. Am I, am I doing the right things? You know, how can I help this baby? Our baby was having some symptoms of a medical problem. And I just remember being desperate, crying out to the Lord. And in that moment, trying to calm my baby, of course, at the same time, I just remember him giving me that song that we sang, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And that has been a, a precious song to me for many years. And it just, in that moment, became even more dear. And I just started singing it because I needed to preach those truths to myself. And the baby didn't stop crying, you know, nothing changed right away. But what I needed most in that moment was just Christ in me and not just a different set of circumstances, an easier baby um, solutions. I needed the power of the Spirit to help me persevere and just to keep trusting and just to remember his goodness in providing this child that was an answer to many years of prayer and and just a gift of his grace. So 
things took on proper perspective when I just started to lift my eyes to Jesus and I continued to sing that song to him before every nap and we do to both of our boys to this day and it's it's probably more for us <laughs> than it is for them um, just to remind ourselves at the end of the day who's in who's in control, who's on the throne. Yeah, in, in both of the, the stories we just mentioned, nothing changed circumstantially, but Jesus stayed the same, and it was just a shift of perspective um, that, yeah, our boys think we're singing to them. We're actually singing to ourselves, <laughs> like we need to keep our eyes on Jesus, you know, at the end of a long day, so. Your boys told me that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a baby whisperer. Uh, <laughs> You know, let me bounce forward to the last question. Um, maybe what's a passage of scripture we talked about God just shouting, right? This, this voice of just thunder, but also of many waters, these roaring waters. What was, what was a passage or passages of scripture that in the midst of kind of these different transitional points really spoke to you guys' life? Well, I mentioned Matthew 6, but um, in, in just some of the struggles we've gone through, um, not so much in marriage, but circumstantially with things that are going around us, um, the health of our first baby. We, we lost a baby. We miscarried our first child. That was horrible. It was, it was incredibly difficult. But one passage that definitely popped out to me was um, Psalm 88. And if you've ever read it, it doesn't, it doesn't end well. It's, um, I think the last line says, darkness is my closest friend. Um, but to me, I felt like after this terrible loss, I had to be the strong one. I had to, again, be the provider of strength to my family. Ridiculous. I don't need to do that. That's God's role. And to me, to read a passage like Psalm 88 that is a, a psalm of, uh, what you call it, lament, mm -hmm. um, and there is no happy ending. There's no, like, happily ever after type thing. And it's okay for me as the head of my household to be sad and to be depressed and to go, you know what, this stinks. And, and then Kara encouraged me to say, look, if you feel depressed or sad or, or even angry at God, tell him that. Just say, I don't know, God, why you let this happen. And tell him, like, if you're mad at him, just let him know. He wants a relationship with you. He doesn't want your fairy tale, you know, bumper sticker life, your Facebook postings, you know. He wants the, the junk. He wants everything, your struggles, your, your depression. And Psalm 88 is, was incredibly encouraging because if it's in the Bible, God allowed it to be in the Bible. And it's very different than, like I said, like some of these bumper sticker passages that we can just throw on our lives, you know. And for me, it was refreshing to go, wow, this guy is totally depressed and in a dark place, and he's crying that out to God. I'm going to do the same. And I felt like my relationship with God was deepened during that time because I could just tell him, here I am, God. This is who I am. You do your work in me. So. Um, Lamentations 3, 22 through 23 and 4 have been a great comfort and encouragement um, to me. Just focusing on his steadfast love because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed his mercies never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You know, there's so many things that change in our lives, circumstances, relationships, people, right? Um, but the Lord never changes, and his love is unfailing for us. And that has been just a, a rock for me, a rock of refuge. And, and along with that, Psalm 103, that's, 
it, there's a beautiful part of it in the first few verses that says that he crowns us with love and compassion. And just to, to picture that God is, has set his love upon us and, and it's not going to change. And um, later it says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So those have been um, great, great encouragement to us. Yeah. Well, let's do this as we close. Um, I don't know what's going on in anybody's life, but um, I would just say this. If anybody needs prayer today, we would love to pray with you. I know that both these two will be up, up front with me. There'll be elders up front if anybody needs prayer. But as we go to pray, kind of as we finish things off, don't forget this. If you're a follower of Jesus, we're good. We're really good. And Jesus is coming back. And he's not coming back as a humble servant. When we see him next, he will be king of kings and lord of lords. Amen? Amen. All God's people said... God bless you this week.